Well, if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1261 in the Pew Bible. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through this book, and we've come to the final section, and we'll finish this book together this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, final words, final words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The final words of any individual are revealing. This was true for the Apostle Paul, and it was true for the great reformer John Knox. Recently, I've been reading a biography of this giant of the faith. And in one of the chapters of this book, the author chronicles the last weeks and days and hours of Knox's life. And he writes the following. On November 24th, 1572, as Knox lay in bed, a friend asked if he had any pain. And Knox replied, it is no painful pain, but such a pain as shall soon I trust put an end to the battle. Knox then asked his wife to read to him again scriptures and sermons. At midday, she repeatedly read to him 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to which he replied to her, Is that not a comfortable chapter? He then pointed with three fingers upward to heaven And said, I commend my soul and spirit and body unto thy hands, O Lord. And after another five hours, Knox instructed his wife, Go read where I have cast my first anchor. And he was referring to John chapter 17, the chapter that converted him to Christ. Finally, She once more read to him a part of Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. Knox lay quiet on his deathbed for some hours. Then at 11 o'clock that night, Knox sighed and said, Now it is come. His secretary, Richard Banatine, encouraged him to think on the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises. And Knox lay speechless. There was no verbal response. His loyal secretary asked for a sign that he could still hear, and Knox raised up one of his hands to heaven. 
and then he died peacefully. And though his final words were few, they were powerful. And as his personal secretary wrote upon his death, he said, Knox was the light of Scotland, the comfort of the church, the mirror of godliness, and the pattern example of all true ministers. Like Knox's final words, the last words of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church, though small in number, were packed with a powerful punch. This church, newly formed, was strong in many ways, but it also had many struggles. It was tormented by persecution and false doctrine and fear and unconfessed sin. And in the main body of this letter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul gave the church detailed instructions for how to deal with all of these problems. And now, as we come to the conclusion of this brief letter, we find Paul's final words to this dearly loved congregation. These last words from Paul's lips and pen summarize his thoughts. They reveal his heart and they demonstrate his understanding of the needs of the church at Thessalonica. And they also demonstrate his understanding of the needs that the church would have in the 21st century. Here in this brief passage of Scripture, we find Paul's final words to five types of people within the Thessalonian church and five types of people within every church. So would you notice with me, first of all, Paul's final words to the discouraged in verse 13. He says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. In this verse, the Apostle Paul transitions from his instructions toward the idle members of the church to the rest of the congregation. In the opening phrase, as for you, marks a strong contrast between those church members who were living in the sin of idleness and the church at large. And Paul gives the church at large a very simple but a very clear command. They are not to grow weary in doing good. The phrase grow weary could mean to grow weary physically, or it could mean to be in despair emotionally. It could also be translated to be discouraged or to lose heart. This phrase carries the idea of a person who becomes exhausted and they're at the point of giving up and throwing in the towel. They are disappointed in their expectations. They've had a certain expectation of life. They've had a certain desire, a certain goal, a certain thought in front of them. And their thoughts and their desires and their goals have not met their expectations. And they're disappointed and they're exhausted physically. They're exhausted emotionally. They're exhausted Mentally, it means that they're exhausted in their patience because of the prolonged effort that they have been under. It's not someone that gives up easily. This person has been in the fight. They've been striving for the Lord and for the things of His kingdom, but things have not worked out the way that they've expected for them. 
And now they're completely spent, completely exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally. They are spiritually depleted. And Paul says to this church, do not grow weary. It's the same counsel he gave to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Listen to what he said in that verse very simply. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that's the connection, friends. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Don't grow weary to the point that you give up. And that word or phrase, give up, that Paul uses in Galatians 6, 9, it carries on this idea of growing weary, of becoming so exhausted that you just give up and you throw in the towel. You relax your effort. You remove your disciplines in life. And you just coast. And you just give up. This idea of growing weary and giving up and giving in is the exact opposite of what Paul taught the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, he said these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And his instructions to the Corinthians in that verse flowed out of his doctrinal teaching of the resurrection. And so all of these thoughts come together and Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, Christ is risen from the dead. Yes, you've had problems. Yes, you've had difficulty. Yes, you're spiritually exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. You're emotionally exhausted. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. There's hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can keep pressing forward. You may not see all of the fruit in your life and your ministry now, but this isn't the end of the race. Keep running. Don't give up. Why did Paul say this? Because he knew what it was like to not give up. Friends, he knew what it was like to not grow weary. He knew what it was like to not lose hope. This is what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 and 8 to 10 and verse 14. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, listen to it, we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We are afflicted in every way. Now listen to the text. But not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. There was a but not over the life of the Apostle Paul that came from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what kept him in the fight. That's what kept him running. 
That's what kept him from throwing in the towel and growing weary and giving in and giving up. And Paul knew from firsthand experience the temptation of growing weary. He knew from firsthand experience the temptation of giving up. He knew what it was like to be beaten. He knew what it was like to be persecuted. He knew what it was like to be lied about. And yet, he stayed in the game. He stayed in the fight. And what he learned through the grace of God, he is now applying to the Thessalonians' life because some of them were discouraged. And what he's applying to them, he's applying to you and me. Could you imagine if you were in the Thessalonian church? False teachers had infiltrated and told you that Jesus had come back and you've missed it. And you're a lost cause. Not only that, you've been working hard, providing for your family, ministering and serving the Lord. And there's a whole group of people in the church who have grown idle and lazy and the sin of idleness has progressed and it's led to being busybodies in the church. And they're talking about everybody that's doing all the work and they're causing division and strife. And just imagine if you were sitting in that church and were witness to all of these things. Wouldn't it have been easy for you to say, why am I doing this? It's not worth it. Somebody else can do this. Nobody appreciates me anyway. Nobody understands what I've gone through. Nobody understands how hard I'm working. I'll just throw in the towel. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. And so Paul says, don't grow weary. Notice the text. In doing good. Do you know what that literally means? Church, don't grow weary in doing what is right. Even when nobody else is doing it. You do what is right. It's what he told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Don't grow weary in doing good to everyone, and especially don't grow weary in doing good to the church. It's a word here for us. In this context of 2 Thessalonians, doing what's right is for the faithful members of the congregation to keep working hard and diligently and setting an example for the rest of the church and providing for their family and for caring for the needs of the church. It's to continue to do what is right in the eyes of the unbelieving world so that you can witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's made a difference in your life and how he's changed you. It's not growing weary and doing what's right by caring for the widows and the orphans and the vulnerable in your midst. It's not growing weary and doing what's right by pursuing spiritual growth and by diligently serving the Lord. Don't grow weary in doing that, church. That's what he's saying to the Thessalonians. And it's what he's saying to you and me this morning. First Baptist Church Wheeling, don't grow weary in doing what's right. Even if there's other people that aren't. You 
don't go weary in this area. He wouldn't say it if there wasn't a strong possibility of growing weary. He says it to the church. He says it to you and me because the reality of living in this world and living for God in this world and serving the Lord in this world, the reality of all that, friends, is it is possible to grow weary and give up. And that if you live life long enough for the Lord, there will come times and seasons in your life when you'll want to give up. And that's why he says, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't grow weary. You see, there's a caution for all of us this morning. One of the greatest frustrations in Christian life and Christian ministry and a principal cause of weariness in doing good is that you don't see yourself making a difference or a significant contribution. And so you think, why bother? And you begin to tell yourself that what you're doing doesn't matter. And what Paul is teaching the Thessalonians and what Paul is teaching you and me is quit focusing all of your time and attention on visible results. That we serve a sovereign God who's promised that his word will never return void and that work for him will always be noticed. And that the ultimate harvest isn't now, but it is when Jesus Christ returns and rules and reigns for all eternity. And that in that season... We'll see the fruit. And if you're not careful, you'll get discouraged in this season because you think it's not worth it. And Paul says to those who are discouraged, it is worth it. Keep doing what is right, even if you're the only one. Do you know what I learned in studying my Bible? I learned that there is a direct correlation between growing weary and doing good and a lack of prayer in your life. A lack of prayer, prayerlessness, is one of the main reasons why we grow weary in doing good in our service for the Lord. It's one of the main reasons why we grow weary in living the Christian life. The Christian life is so daily, that's what makes it so hard in the ordinary things of life. And when we're prayerless, there's a direct correlation to prayerlessness and weariness. Don't don't take it from me. Take it from the Word of God. Luke records that Jesus made this connection between growing weary and doing good and a lack of prayer. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 18 in verse 1. And I highly recommend that you underline that verse and highlight it in your Bible and go back to it over and over again when you're discouraged and weary in your souls and you want to give up. And this is what Luke 18 1 says. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Do you see it? You ought always to pray because when you're prayerful, it'll help you in your weariness. But if you're like me and you're discouraged in your soul 
and you're fighting a battle in your mind and you're trying to tell yourself what's true and what's right and believe those things, but you keep focusing on the lies and the false truths, you grow weary. And sometimes in your weariness, the last thing that you want to do is pray. And Jesus says, that's actually the first thing you should do. Then in your weariness, you should pray because prayerfulness will affect your weariness and your giving up. And so I say to the discouraged today, maybe you need to leave this place in a few moments, not till the sermon's over, and get alone with God and pray your weariness through. This verse asks us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves if we are growing weary, if we have given up. Have you told yourself it's not worth it? Have you bought into the lies that the devil has tempted you to believe? That what you're doing for Christ and for his kingdom doesn't matter? That nobody appreciates it, nobody notices it? Have you thrown in the towel and said, I've, I've done the same things over and over and over with my kids and it's not making a difference? Oh, friends, that's what the devil wants you to believe about your parenting. You've got to parent for the long haul, not the short term. You've got to do it day in and day out, over and over and over again. Have you given up? Are you complacent in your faith this morning, friends? That's a sign of growing weary. That you're just coasting. That you could look back in your spiritual life from a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and you could say, I was more passionate then than I am now. It means you've grown weary. Have the events of the world caused you to say, what's the use? Friends, would you listen to the text? Would you listen to your pastor? You're not doing it for other people. You're doing it for Christ. Well, we not only see Paul's final words to the discouraged in verses 14 and 15, we see Paul's final words to the disobedient. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. These verses are really simple, and it's what makes it so difficult, isn't it? Paul tells the church that if the disobedient in their midst will not listen to his commands from God himself, that the rest of the congregation should exercise church discipline. The word obey in verse 14 is a word of action. It literally relates to being a doorkeeper. It's used in Acts chapter 12 in verse 13 for answering the door. It carries the idea of hearing something and then acting on what is said, as if someone came to the door and knocked on it and said, hello, it's so-and-so, can I please come in? And you hear what they say, and you open the hand, you grab the handle, and you open the door. 
It's hearing and obeying. And in this context, Paul says, I've taught them the truth about their sin. They've heard it. And if they don't obey church, you're to deal with them. Now, notice in the text in verses 14 and 15 that the entire congregation is to be involved. This is a church matter. It's not simply saying, oh, the elders are supposed to take care of this. No, no, no. This is the entire church body speaking into the lives of these members who are in willful sin. And he says in the text that there's three things that they ought to do. Do you see it? Verse 14, they're to take note of that person. It literally means that they're to mark them out with special notice. It would be the equivalent of standing up before the church and saying, so-and-so and so-and-so are in willful, disobedient sin publicly against God's commands. And Paul has gone to them, and we, the leaders of the church, have gone to them, and they refuse to repent and obey the word of God. Mark them. Take notice of them. Number two, verse 14, do you see it? They're to have nothing to do with them. It's the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what it literally means is the church should stop fellowshipping with these people who are in sin. They should stop socializing with them. They should stop letting these people think that their willful disobedient sin is okay. Which then leads to step three, verse 14, that they would be ashamed. Now notice what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say that the church should shame these people. The church should never do that. The text says that when the church exercises church discipline, and they mark them and put them on notice, and then they remove fellowship from them, The prayer would be that those who are caught in the cords of their sin would be ashamed of their sin. They would become convicted of their sin. They would feel guilty over their sin. That the isolation from the body of Christ, God would use through His Spirit to convict them of their sin, to soften their heart, to break their pride, and to lead them back into the church in repentance and submission to the authority of God and his word because you see friends church discipline is always for the purpose of reconciliation it's always for the purpose of restoration and you say well this sounds so harsh and it would say harsh to the culture that you and I live in today that says that everything is right and that there is no standard and that you are your own authority and you're the master of your fate and you're the captain of your soul and you're your own little God so you can determine what's right and wrong. Of course it wouldn't sound right. But you have to decide whether you're going to live in that mindset or you're going to live and submit to the authority of God. And God says that this is how it's to be dealt with. Because, see, if you don't believe what the text says about this, then you don't think sin is as deadly as it really is. God understands how deadly sin is because it cost him his son's life. And because sin is so deadly and sin plays for keeps, God says that sin must be dealt with in the church when it becomes public in the world. And this is how the church is to deal with it. One of the most brilliant 
theological New Testament scholars that I've ever heard teach is a man named Tom Schreiner. And this is why he says these steps must take place. Discipline is necessary so the church retains its purity and its power. If sin is tolerated in the community, the difference between the church and the world is erased. If the church's purity is compromised, then the message of the gospel is diluted and the message of salvation and the glory of God are besmirched. Do you know what church discipline really is, friends? It's about the glory of God. It's about the holiness of God. It's about what God says is right and wrong. And notice in verse 15 what Paul says about the disobedient. Now, church, when you do this, you're to warn them as brothers and sisters and not as enemies. That's your brother and sister in Christ that you're trying to rescue from sin. It's not your enemy. And you're to warn them. That word literally means to admonish, to put into their mind the word of God. And listen, this word is helpful when you're thinking about church discipline. Do you know what you're really doing when you reach out to a brother and sister in Christ who is in public, willful, disobedient sin? You are saying to them, I love you so much. I care about you so much that I must warn you because your soul is at stake. And do you know what you're saying? If you know your brother or sister in Christ is in willful public sin and you won't go to them and you won't warn them and you won't send them a life preserver, but you'd be happy to go talk to somebody else about it. You are saying you really don't care about them. And Paul is saying to the church, he's saying to you and me that we should have a heart for the souls that are in our midst that if they're caught in sin, if they're in public willful disobedience to the word of God and the God of the word, that we are to warn them and we are to rescue them and we are to bring them back into the fold. That's what a loving church would do. But the world would say that is what a hateful church will do. And so again, I'd say you have to just decide whose word you're going to follow. The world's word or God's word. This verse urges us to ask ourselves, do we know a brother and sister in Christ this morning who needs rescued? Do we know a brother and sister in Christ who needs warned? Has someone in these last three or four minutes, as I've proclaimed this truth, come into your mind that you need to have a conversation with? Do you care about their soul enough to warn them? Hear the heart of your pastor, church. Sin plays for keep. It will always keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. It is never discounted. You will pay full retail price for sin. And if there is unconfessed, public, willful, disobedient sin in your life today, you just have to ask yourself, 
Is that how you want Christ to find you when he returns? Well, we not only see Paul's final words to the discouraged and to the disobedient. In verse 16, we see Paul's final words to the distraught. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. In light of all of this that this church has been through with their suffering and their confusion and their chaos, Paul prays that the Lord of peace would give them peace at all times and in every circumstance. He's reminding the church and he's reminding you and me this morning, friends, that God is a God of peace and that peace originates with him, that he is the source of peace and he is the supply of peace to everyone who is in need. And the peace that he's referring to in this passage is twofold. It refers, first of all, to peace with God and the peace that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross when he died in your place for your sins and my sins on that tree. Because the Bible teaches that because we were born in sin and because we were prone to sin and because we've wandered away from God, we have no peace with God apart from Christ. And so God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that the wrath of God could be removed from our life for sin and so that we could experience peace with the God who created us. And Jesus secured this peace between us and God. And once we experience this peace between us and God through Christ and his work on the cross, the Bible teaches that we not only have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. And the peace of God is for practical living. And in the context of the book of 2 Thessalonians, the peace of God that Paul is referring to, to these distraught church members, is peace that comes in when there's external opposition to the church and to the Christian life. There is a peace that comes in understanding the truths of the second coming of Christ. There's a peace that comes from God when there's conflict in the church. And there's peace that comes from God in our personal, everyday lives of walking with God. This is the experiential peace of God. But before you can ever experience this kind of peace, you have to have peace with God. Because peace with God flows to the experiential peace of God. That's why Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you hear that, friends? We're living in a world of fear. And I'm sure some of these Thessalonian believers had fear cropping up in their lives from time to time. And do you hear what Paul says is the answer to their fear? The peace of God. That God's peace is available. Look at what the verse says. In every way and in every circumstance. So you could just take that verse this morning and you could insert your life into that verse and you could say, I'm fearful of this, but the peace of God is available to me in every way in this situation. 
I am anxious about this. I am distraught about this. My joy is gone over this. And Paul would say to you, you can take this and put it in this truth. That you can have God's peace in every way in this circumstance. I guarantee you, there's somebody in this room that needed to hear that. You're distraught and consumed by things that have robbed you of your joy and your peace in Christ. Do you know what Paul says? Church, look up. Look up. Peace is coming down. Do you know what it means to have this peace with God? Do you know what it means to experientially have The peace of God? Maybe in your discouragement and worry and anxiety, friends, you need to look up. Well, we not only see Paul's final words to the discouraged and his final words to the disobedient and his final words to the distraught. If you're keeping track, this is number four. Paul's final words to the deceived, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. He's writing to a church that was deceived. False teachers had crept in. You remember, we've studied this. And they said, Christ has already come back and you've missed it and there's no hope for you. And so you know what Paul says to the church? After he instructs them and corrects them in their deception, he says at the very end, one of the last words to them is, these are words from God, and I'm signing my name to them. This is what God told me to say to you, and I'm signing my name. This came from me. Now listen to me, students. Listen to me, college students. Listen to me, high school students. Listen to me, junior high students. The danger of deception is greater than it's ever been in your life and in our world. Than it's ever been. You say, well, that, that's a pretty big statement. I'll stand by that statement. I think the world's darker than it's ever been. And there's more deception than there's ever been. And if you read the, your Bible, it's going to continue to increase until Christ comes back and shines light on all of it. And so listen to me, students. Listen to your pastor. What he's saying to this church, he's saying to you, don't be deceived by the world and the things that the world is trying to get you to believe. Find your truth right here. And listen. Don't listen to the teachers in the classroom. Don't listen to the pundits. Don't listen to the world. This word is true. And God says that he's going to judge everyone and everything by this word. And if anybody tells you anything differently, they're lying to you. And you remember, you remember this moment in time when your pastor looked you in the eyes, students, And he challenged you and he told you this truth. Because I care about what happens to you. Your parents care about what happens to you. This church cares about what happens to you. And you're the next generation. 
You're the next generation that we're going to pass the torch of the word of God on to. Don't be deceived. Receive it. Embrace it. Stake your very life and soul on it. It'll never fail you. It'll never fail you. Do you know what the Bible says about his word? Psalm 1-2. A godly man, a godly woman has their delight in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on it day and night. And students, if you'll just delight in the word of God. If you'll meditate on it. If you'll learn now as a student to walk with God. And open your Bible every day and read it. And think about what you're reading. And delight in it. You'll be a godly young man. A godly young woman. His word will never return void to you in your life. Psalm 119 verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't just delight in the word. Take it in. Store it up. Memorize some verses. How can a young man, how can a young woman keep their way pure? By guarding it according to the word of God. Memorize that. Remember that when you're in the midst of temptation. Store it in your heart. 3 John 4, I pray this verse over every one of my children. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Friends, do you, do you, students, friends, church, this, this applies to everybody. Do you understand that this is the key to keep you from deception? That if you'll delight in it, and if you'll store it up, and if you walk in it, God will bless it and honor it in your life in ways that you can never imagine. Kids, students, don't you ever forget what your pastor said to you about that. There'd be no greater joy in my life than to see you grow up and get married and raise a family and be a godly man and a godly woman. Don't be deceived. Verse 18. Paul's final words to the undeserving. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He ends the book the way he began, with grace. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, he commended them to the grace of God. And now he ends the letter, the very last words that he'll say to them. He commends them once again to the grace of God. It's God's undeserved goodness and favor on our lives. And notice what the text says. It's available to all. Do you hear that, friends? God's grace is available to you. You say, no, pastor, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand where I've been. I can't forgive myself. How in the world could God forgive me? Grace. You don't understand, Pastor, I'm so discouraged. How can I not give up grace? You don't understand, Pastor, I've been so disobedient. How could I come back? Grace. You don't understand, Pastor, I'm so distraught, I'm so anxious, I'm so full of fear and worry. How can I keep going forward? Grace. Grace. It's what the hymn writer said who knew better than anyone other than maybe the Apostle Paul about grace. 
It's grace that taught my heart to fear. In grace, my fears relieved. Through many toils, dangers, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that brought me safe this far, and it's grace that will lead me home. The Christian life is a life of grace that flows down from the God of peace to the undeserving, you and me. And what you and I need to continue to live to the end for God and for the things of his kingdom is grace. Final words. They're important. They're unforgettable. I wonder what final words Paul has said today you need to receive and apply in your life. Let's pray.